Our first scripture reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. Acts 17. Sermon on Mars Hill. Verse 22, and Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Then would you also turn please to Isaiah chapter 41. The text for the sermon is verses... 1 to 4, after that I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 5. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, let them speak, let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not seen traversing with his feet, had not been traversing with his feet, who has performed and accomplished it calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. And then uh, if you have a look in your bulletins, you should uh, find a copy there of the Westminster Confession, chapter 5, and the first four articles of that chapter, which is a uh, chapter on God's providence,
follows uh, quite logically. We learned in the previous chapter about how God created the world and now in chapter 5 on providence how he continues to uh, maintain what he uh, created in the beginning. Article 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures, actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable course of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy. Article 2. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely or contingently. Article 3. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure. And then Article 4. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, though many object to the truths of your word and what it teaches about you and what it teaches about your works, including these truths that we have been looking at recently of your decree and your creative work, and now as we look today at this matter of your providence, Father, will you enable us to see that all you are and all you have spoken and all you have done is entirely good and just and righteous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, I have been um, noticing in some of the uh, news articles that I've read or seen on TV that uh, many countries at the present time, it seems, uh, especially in the the, uh, uh, area of Asia and around that region, uh, there seems to be a certain amount of fear as to the way that things are going. There are tensions in that region. Fear of war over the South China Sea, uh, including uh, that involves quite a few nations. And then, of course, there are many other political issues within various countries. Tensions between the left and the right. Uh, Issues in the United States, for example, with the Black Lives Matter movement. Fear of persecution of Christians, either coming from the left 
or in places where the dominant religion is hostile to the Christian faith. And in light of those things, it is really just as well that we believe in God's providence. God's providence is nicely defined here in the Westminster in Chapter 5, Article 1, and just uh, removing some significant but nevertheless uh, uh, not uh, the essential parts of that definition, if you want a, a somewhat briefer definition to get the, the basic idea of what God's providence is, it is this expression that God upholds, directs, disposes and governs all. All creatures, all actions, all things. And he does so according not only to his own infallible foreknowledge, but also the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will, in other words, his predestination. A term, all things, which obviously includes nations and their leaders and both their external policies, the way they deal with other nations, and their internal policies, the way they deal with their own people. All things, all creatures, actions and things. And we see that definition in action here in this chapter in Isaiah 41. Three points as we look at it. Firstly, who directs the nations? Secondly, his use of means. And thirdly, how the nations should respond. Who directs the nations? The way he uses secondary means. And how the nations should respond. In the first place, then, this passage really does confirm that this, this truth, a truth with which we ought to be familiar as God's people, that truth about God's providence, that it is the Lord who directs the nations ultimately. Not the governments ultimately, but the Lord. And if you put together some of the expressions that are used in this chapter, in these verses, you can see that very clearly. It is the Lord who would arouse one from the east, verse 2, uh, the east being Persia, and no doubt referring to Cyrus in particular in this passage. So the Lord is the one who moves Cyrus to do what uh, Cyrus did in history. It is the Lord who would then deliver up the nations and subdue the kings before Cyrus, so that they would become like dust or like windblown chaff before his weapons, the weapons of his army of sword and bow. It is the Lord who would enable Cyrus to pursue and destroy one nation after another to the point where he would even pass on in safety beyond those nations that he had defeated in order to reach out into areas that he'd never been before himself, never traversed before, verse 3, and it is the Lord who, even before Cyrus, called those very nations into being and who enabled them to have a succession of generations to make them the nations they were at that time. Something the Lord has done from the beginning to the present, as verse 4 describes. And there we can think of what we read in Acts 17 as well, verse 26, that God made every nation from one man, from Adam, and he determined the appointed times and the boundaries of those nations, uh, those lands and their dynasties. He, uh, he appointed and determined 
uh, where they existed on the map of the world and how long those civilizations would last, how long before an empire crumbled, how long before one nation was absorbed into another nation. And all of that was from the Lord ultimately. As the Westminster sums up or states in Article 1, God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes and governs all creatures, all actions, all things, and that must include the fact that he is, as uh, one, uh, I think, rather well-known national anthem says, the God of nations. Now think for a moment about some of the things that are implied in that. Some of the things that are involved when Cyrus would begin the liberation of God's people from Babylon. Because that's how God used him. Think of the fact that Cyrus, in order to get to that position, needed certain talents and abilities. Or he probably wouldn't have got where he did and had the success that he did. He needed to have a certain amount of power and to rise in that power. He needed to have a certain purpose which would lead him to go out to war against nations and in due time would lead him to liberate God's people. Then also you needed the the situation and the mood and the economics of Persia to be just so, so that Cyrus would be able to rule and keep ruling Persia for a time and that he would have the ability to, and they would have the ability to send out powerful armies that could defeat everyone else in that area. And likewise, you needed to have those armies in their particular battles achieving victory over other powerful armies. Even in situations that were at that time and in that part of the world deemed virtually impossible, like the defeat of Babylon. And yet it's uh, well certainly alleged, whether it's true or not I don't know, but it is alleged that uh, Cyrus even diverted a, uh, a river course Uh, in order to achieve an unexpected victory over the Babylonians. Uh, You needed the mood of the king to free the captive people once he had control there. And none of this is any kind of attributing of these things to the Lord after the event. You often find uh, liberal theologians making that kind of claim or uh, rank unbelievers making that kind of claim that uh, the Bible books were actually written a lot later than what they say and they speak as if they are prophecies of these things, but in fact they uh, came about uh, and were written after the event and it was attributed to God as if he had done those things. But no, this is not some attributing of these things to the Lord after the event. This, from Isaiah, is a prophecy that was made a couple of centuries before Cyrus did what he did. And that includes the Lord moving not only a few major outcomes in this, but all of the psychology and the economy and the politics and the personal factors, all of that which is tied up together in an all-embracing providence. But just as we saw with the doctrines of the decrees of God, his predestination, and the creative work of God, this is exactly what we should expect from our God. Because he is the Lord, as verse 4 reminds us. The Lord Yahweh. That word that means that he is the eternal, unchanging, independent and self-existent God. And so he doesn't depend on the future 
in order for him to be able to make his decree. And he doesn't depend on the future uh, in order to, in his providence, carry out his plans. And he doesn't depend on creatures in order to make his decree or to carry it out in his providence. Creatures can't limit him. And he doesn't depend on nations or kings in order to make his decrees and to carry out his purposes in his providence. Nations and kings cannot limit him. On the contrary, creatures, circumstances, kings and the future all depend on him. And surely that's the point of the conclusion in verse 4. I, the Lord, Yahweh in other words, am the first and with the last. I am he. In other words, God is pre-existent. He is the first. And he will still be there at the end with the last because he's eternal. And by the way, when you read in Revelation 22 verse 13 that Jesus also is the first and the last uh, sometimes you get uh, uh, those you might meet people like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, who might say, well, this just proves that Jesus is a creature because he has a beginning and he has an end. But you see here, this kind of language is used of Yahweh. And you see the sense in which it is used when God is called the first and the last or there already before the, at the beginning and with the last... That kind of language is a way of saying that God is pre-existent and eternal and it means exactly the same with the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God. And it is said in Revelation 22 verse 13 for a very similar reason for the statement being here in Isaiah 41 verse 4. That is to encourage God's people that even though the nations may oppress them, yet it is all according to the eternal an independent God and his plan and it is under his providential governance. So that when he says that Israel will be freed and when he says that the church of the New Testament will be preserved, that is an absolutely certain truth. If God can raise up Cyrus to defeat Babylon, he can raise up Cyrus also to free Israel. And if he can do those things, he can just as easily preserve the church of today, as Revelation reminds us in chapter 22. He can preserve the church of today from any threat at all, whether it be expansionist policies of, of nations in the world today, those who are hostile to Christianity, or internal left-wing policies in formerly Christian Western countries. Well, from what has been said, it should be clear that though God governs all people, nations, uh, all uh, events and uh, all kings and so forth in his providence, this does not take away the existence of secondary means. Our second point, his use of means. By secondary, we mean that God uses uh, finite, time-bound changeable, dependent creatures and circumstances to accomplish his ultimate, eternal and unchanging purposes underneath his overarching providence and governance. And that's really the point that's made in the Westminster Confession in Chapter 5, Article 2, uh, though Article 3 makes the additional point that 
though God uses means, he is free to work without them or to work above them or to work against them in the use of secondary means. In the text, it's very obvious that God uses secondary means. He uses the means of the Babylonians to chastise his people Israel. And he uses the secondary means of Cyrus and uh, other kings after him to deliver Israel. And those kings and those nations didn't realise the extent to which they were serving God's purposes. No doubt they acted according to their own ungodly purposes, according to their own natures, but ultimately they were serving God's purposes. And the very fact that he prophesied these things uh, before they happened through Isaiah the prophet shows that this was a purpose which we know came to pass. Now the fact that God does this has led many to question the goodness of God, the goodness of a God who uses secondary means that are themselves not good, but God uses them to accomplish his purposes. Note in that connection that verse 2 speaks of God calling Cyrus to his feet. In other words, he's using Cyrus for his, that is, God's sovereign purposes. He calls him to heal, he calls him to his feet, and to carry out his purposes in righteousness. Cyrus was not a righteous man, but God's purpose and God's act of calling and the result that came from that the result he wanted and planned was a righteous one. And the same thing can be said of Adam and Eve at the time of the fall, as the Westminster Confession points out in Article 4 in this chapter. God ordained it, and it happened under the governance of his providence, and yet the secondary means, Satan's tempting, Eve's desire for the fruit, and her gullibility, Adam's weakness as head of that household, all of those things involved unrighteousness. That's where the unrighteousness comes in. Not in God's purpose, not in God's predestination, not in God's providence, but in the creature. Westminster, in that same article, has a few more things to comment about on this issue and it notes that we can't really get away from this question by saying that God merely permits evil, especially not if we have this idea that God just stands back and says nothing to do with me, that he stands back and lets creatures just get into their their own mess uh, without any kind of involvement or action or activity in it himself. And the Westminster warns against that kind of view of it, that idea of bare permission, as it's sometimes called, that that's all God does. He just allows things and nothing more, bare permission. Uh, The Westminster warns against that view because it points out that God's permission is always part of his predestination of the future. And God's permission is always within the context of a powerful Uh, bounding and ordering and governing of things, of his creatures, to his own holy purposes. Now, as I've said before, I know that 
Uh, people raise all sorts of philosophical issues concerning this. Uh, best answer I have found to uh, deal, the best way perhaps to deal with people who uh, raise those kind of questions, first question to ask them is, you think that God is not acting in a way that is good by using means who are evil? Then let me ask you, where do you actually get your idea of good and evil from? And how do you know that's right? That's perhaps the first question to ask them. And then following on from that, um, you come back to this definition of what is good and evil. And if you define evil as acting against God's glory and you define good as acting for God's glory, then you can ask this question, is there any purpose of God in predestination that is against his glory? And the answer is no. Is there any bounding or governing of people, events or creatures in his providence that he does against his own glory? And the answer is again, no. Is there any command in God's Bible concerning good and evil that you could say this is evil? As Christians, we would say no, there is no such command, no evil command from God. Is there any failure on God's part eventually to deal with wickedness in this world? No, there is no failure to do that. And is there any final outcome in all of this that is against God's glory? And again, the answer is no. Isaiah 41 verse 2 doesn't go into all of that. It simply summarizes all of that by saying God calls the man of the East in righteousness. And the Westminster Confession also doesn't go into all of this. It simply summarizes it by saying God is not the author of evil or the approver of evil. He is most holy and righteous. Sinfulness only proceeds from the creature. We can't answer all of the philosophical questions concerning this. But by grace, we can accept this simple testimony of Scripture that God is always righteous. These truths, God's providential governance of all people, nations, rulers, events, things and kings, like the fact of his creation of all things and like the fact of his decree of all things, should result in a certain response. Not only from his people, but also from all people. Our third and final point, how the nations should respond. Note how even in this Old Testament setting, where the Lord, in the Old Testament, he deals mainly with his people Israel. But sometimes he addresses the nations. And this is one of those cases. He calls on the coastlands. He calls them to attention, to listen to him in silence. In other words, to listen to him with respect rather than murmuring and objecting and refusing. And note that the coastlands, that term is parallel to the peoples. In other words, he is addressing all the Gentile, the Gentile nations at that time and place. And he calls on them to prepare themselves for what is going to happen a couple of centuries after this. The march of the Persian armies under Cyrus. As Cyrus marches those armies and attacks and destroys and defeats not only um, 
captures and destroys and defeats uh, all of those, those uh, nations around in that part of the world and then afterwards, of course, liberates God's people to return from exile. And he calls on them to prepare for that, but also to prepare behind all of that to answer to God for their idolatry, which is the reason why Cyrus is being sent not only to liberate Israel, but to punish those nations for their idolatry. And you get some uh, taste of that issue of idolatry in verses 5 to 7, which, as you read on in the chapter, mocks the idols of the nations. And more than that, more than the nations of that time preparing for God to punish them for their idolatries, more than that, all the nations should take warning from the truth of God's providence if they think that God is not able to gather all people and all nations into a final judgment, then they better think hard about this truth of God's providence. The God who can raise up someone like Cyrus, send him and use him and give him victories so that those nations are punished for their idolatry. If God can do that, he can do the other things as well. He can gather all of the nations from all of the world, arrange all of the factors so they all come together under a final judgment. And therefore they should bow their knee before him, before the ruling and judging God, the God of providence, recognising that he is the Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and bow also before his son, who is also the Alpha and the Omega, and do so before it is too late. But this is also said for the benefit of God's people. What God says here to the nations was exclaimed by the prophet Isaiah for Israel and recorded in Scripture for the people of Israel as you find if you read on past verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, and they are, of course, Yahweh's servant in a much greater sense than Cyrus, chosen to a far better end than Cyrus. They are called not just from the east, well, the people of Israel were uh, at that time in a particular area, but... Uh, Not only does God have this message for Israel, uh, those who are chosen in this very wonderful sense that he's going to free them by Cyrus, but even beyond that, uh, this is a, a teaching and a reminder that the whole of the church called not just from the east but from the ends of the earth, for us the same message, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In other words, God is promising that he will help Israel and beyond that, that he will help his church at large by his providence, by that same powerful right right arm that governs the nations and that he will do so according to his plan a righteous upholding and directing and disposing and governing. For those who are close to the Lord, in a way, as I mentioned, that Cyrus was not, for those who are with him, as verse 10 has it, 
and as we know it now in the light of the New Testament, those who are with him through his Son, who is God with us in covenant relationship. God demonstrates through Cyrus what he can do for Israel with his providence. And in Christ, he promises to the church what he will accomplish for us by a providence that is directed to the welfare of his church and for those who are in his son. And that, at the end of the day, is the only comfort in this present time, in this world with all its geopolitics and its geopolitical dangers and fears and worries. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you teach us not to fear the nations and their leaders, their wars and their persecutions and their laws, but to fear you in the sense of awe and reverence, a God who directs nations without their even realising it, a God whose providence protects and preserves your church and your people, who has freed us not merely from a foreign oppressor, but from Satan and sin and death, and who will preserve us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's uh, providence is often mysterious, and yet he turns all things ultimately in mercy to bless his people. And therefore, uh, as the the hymn reminds us, take courage. Hymn number 461, we'll stand to sing. And would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 461.
after the blessing as our doxology. We sing number 281, stanzas 1 and 10. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>